Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bible today, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to be in chapter 2, a brief series I'd like to do for the season of Lent. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the word of the Lord. We pray for your blessing with it now, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I've never been a fan of zombie films. Don't hate. I, but I have realized as I have watched a number of zombie films that this picture of the zombie in our modern filmography, it remarkably illustrates something that the Bible tells us about sinful humans. A zombie shows us how there can be lots of activity where there actually is no life. How there can be the appearance of life in one who is, in fact, dead. Sixty seconds before the Titanic hit the iceberg, if someone on that ship had said, we're dead, that would have been absolutely true because it was a, an unavoidable certainty that within hours, most of those passengers would be claimed by the sea. And yet the activity on that ship went on. The band kept playing even after they hit the iceberg, and yet they were dead. Their ruin was certain. Every year I buy my wife a rose, a red rose, for Valentine's Day. And it's a lovely thing. And for a while it shows off its color and its scent, but it is a dead rose. It's just a matter of time before it wilts. To give her a live rose, I'd have to take her and give her the plant. And those metaphors that I'm using, I hope they help us to understand how Paul can say that people who look very much alive, their life seems like it's very much in full motion, they are actually walking dead. They are staggering, zombie-like, on a course with their backs to capital L life. They're walking away from life, and they have no ability to see it, and they have no ability to turn around because they're dead. 
They're busy dealing with life issues, like we all are. They're busy running down dreams, like we all are. But all of that is just flowers in a vase if, as Jesus said, you have no life in you. And I suppose we could talk, if we wanted, about how many churches in our time have begun to preach gospels of glue to put back on our fallen rose petals, churches that are preaching a gospel of we'll give you a, find you a better birth on the Titanic, many churches that have actually stopped talking about the root of all of our human miseries, which is that we are fundamentally alienated from God. And we can do absolutely nothing about that. And until we see that that is the problem, we are alienated from God and we can do nothing about that, then we really can never taste the sheer sweetness of that wonderful Paul, Pauline phrase, but God, but God, who's rich in mercy, right? But Paul is not talking here about evangelism. He's actually not talking about how we talk to those who don't know the Lord. He is talking here about us. The fundamental thing he is saying in these first 10 verses of this chapter is, you guys are not dead anymore. And the implication of that is, you guys don't walk like the dead anymore. You don't walk the walk of the dead anymore because you're not dead. And notice this three specifics that he gives, three specific things he means. He spells it out. He says, you don't follow the world anymore. What he calls in the English translation, the course of this world. You don't follow the devil anymore, the prince of the power of the air. You don't follow what he calls the flesh, the, the passions, the desires of your flesh anymore. All of that is the walk of the dead, the world, the devil, the flesh. You're not following any of that anymore. But it's interesting, you guys know your Bibles, you know your New Testaments. While it is true that we are not following those things anymore, we don't walk in those things anymore, other places in the New Testament tell us that we do very much still contend with those three things, don't we? Love not the world. Because you can be a follower of Jesus and love the world. Resist the devil, because it's very possible to not resist him. Walk in the Spirit of God, and you will not fulfill the passions of the flesh, because if you don't walk in the Spirit, guess what's going to be pulling at you all the time? The flesh. We are contending with these things, even though they are not who we are anymore. And the reason I want to preach this brief series is I want to assess, brothers and sisters, our contending with the world and the flesh and the devil. I want us to know the enemy, and I'd like to try to strengthen our resistance to the influence of these three things. Well, today, the first up is this world, this world, and I want to start today by just defining this world, just defining what it is, because it's interesting, um, I don't want to sort of sound eggheaded here, but if you, if you look at the Greek of this text, it does not say the course of this world, it actually says the age of this world. Paul says, you do not follow the age of this world, the time period of this world. So to understand that, the early Christians received from the Jews, now they modified this, of course, but they received from the Jews a two-age understanding of history. There was an age before and an age after. And guess what's the pivot? There's the age of time before, there we go, you guys are on, Messiah, what we call him in the New Testament, Christ, and there's the age after Christ, and that was how the Jews viewed history. There was going to be the age leading up to the Christ, and then there was going to be the age from the Christ, and the, the, of course, the Christians took that over, the difference from the Jews being that he's here, 
he's come. The turning of the ages has happened with Jesus. And for the Jews and later for the Christians, these two ages were actually two different worlds. They were two different realms of existence, really, because the old age was a realm of human existence that was defined by sin and by the power of the serpent, humankind under God's wrath and under the power of the devil. Whereas the new age is a whole different world, a whole different realm of existence, a world in which God rules through his Messiah and he brings life where there was death. So two different ages that are really two different worlds. And the early Christians, of course, lived, and this is really important for understanding the New Testament, they lived in an overlap of these two ages. You could even say the early Christians, in a sense, lived in two worlds at the same time, because on one hand down here, these powers that Paul in Corinthians calls the rulers of this age killed the Lord of glory. They actually killed the Messiah. That was kind of the ultimate act of Adam-like rebellion against God. And in the time of the early church, those powers that, of this age that killed the Lord of glory were still visibly in power. And the Christians lived in that world. But they also lived in another age that had begun. An age that was inaugurated when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things in heaven and earth. This is a whole new age, a new story, and they were living in that too. And that was actually their true world because there was no question in the early church. Which age of which world they were following, right? They didn't follow this age of this world anymore. They were following another age of another whole world. Their lives were defined by the Jesus story. Their lives were situated in the world of his resurrection life and power. They were not, Paul says here, staggering away from God as children of wrath. Paul says in verse 5, they were alive with the Messiah, with the Christ, and they were learning how to walk accordingly. And yet on the ground in Ephesus, these Christians, these readers of this letter, they found themselves in the Jesus world, in the Jesus story for sure, but also in Ephesus, they were surrounded by currents of the old world. That ancient human quest begun with Father Adam to be independent of God. Surrounded by these currents of an old world and an old story in which human beings, going all the way back to Father Adam, are on this quest, we are not going to be ruled by God. We're going to be our own gods. And so, that's still true today for us in 2023, here on Long Island. This world, for us, this world, this kind of lower age, this lower story we find ourselves living in, along with the Jesus story and this world of his resurrection life, this world is not, when the Bible speaks negatively about this world as an enemy, it's not talking about creation. Creation is awesome. Hope you love it. God does. It's also not talking about culture. All culture is is what human beings do with creation. And God created human beings to do all kinds of stuff with creation, ranging from the arts and sciences to more social stuff like political life and economic life. All of that is just culture. That's what human beings do with creation. That's all good stuff God made us for. When when the Bible talks about this world as an enemy, what it is talking about is normalized independence from God. Let me say that again. The world, as an enemy, 
is normalized independence from God. Now, you know all sin, obviously, expresses that ancient human quest to be independent from God. We don't want to be with God in fellowship, enjoying Him. We don't want to be under God and for God in obedience. All sin expresses that. But the world, when the Bible talks about the world as an enemy, the world is the socio-cultural normalizing of that quest. So in other words, to the extent that I am not joyfully with God in fellowship, and I'm not joyfully for God in obedience, that's sin. But to the extent that feels normal, that's the world. Are you with me? All sin expresses that, in, that quest to be independent of God, but the world is what normalizes that. We find ourselves with the hooks of the world in our heart when I am not with God and I'm not for God and it just feels totally normal. I am just living accepted habits. These are just accepted things in our world, in our time. There are assumed priorities. There are very popular norms that lead away from fellowship with God and His kingdom purposes, and the fact that they are accepted and they are assumed and they are popular, that's the world. It just feels totally normal. Now, the normalcy here, brothers and sisters, is, of course, the problem, isn't it? I think it is probably safe to say that of all of our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world is the hardest to discern. And now having hopefully defined this world, I hope helpfully, it is normalized independence from God, I'd like to turn then to the practical matter of discerning the world. Because we can talk about it in theory, what it is, but to see it in our lives and see it as an enemy and strengthen our resistance is a bit different. So let's talk for a moment about discerning the world. When I talk with Christians about this world and being worldly in in the negative sense that the Bible sometimes describes, I think a lot of Christians tend to look for the influence of the world in clearly sinful behaviors, stuff that breaks the rules. You know, lots of people use Jesus' name as a curse word, and so I find myself using Jesus' name as a curse word, and that means I am worldly. Well, it's not entirely wrong. You know, those clear behaviors that violate God's law, sure, we, we could talk about that. Other Christians in kind of the worldview tradition, I think, tend to see worldliness maybe at another level, and that is at the level of ideas. You have accepted the wrong isms, right? I read one author in this strand of thinking. He talks about trickle-down ideonomics. wonder where he got that trickle-down ideonomics, and the whole book is about the fact that in the history of our civilization, there are a few very big bad ideas that have gradually kind of run together in our culture, and that is why in our time we find ourselves swamped in materialism and pragmatism and existentialism and humanism, and Marxism, and postmodernism, and globalism, etc., etc., etc. And guess how you disinfect from all of this stuff? Well, you get a Christian worldview, and you send your kids to camp for a week, and they learn what the Bible says about economics, and the Bible says about politics, and all of these isms, and now your kids aren't worldly anymore, because they have a Christian worldview. Isn't that great? Sells well, I will tell you, and it has its place. 
But if that's how you're thinking about worldliness, or if you're just thinking about it in terms of the obviously sinful behaviors, neither of those approaches addresses very well how this world, that old Adamic quest for independence, really pulls on us as God's people. Yes, behaviors, yes, what we think, but there's something else. This is where the world really gets at us. Because many places in the Bible tell us that the root of sin, if you really want to take the problem that started with Adam all the way down to the very root of it, the root of sin is rebellious, wayward desire. What the Bible sometimes calls lusts. Now, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be confusing. Desire is good. Human beings were made to desire. Desire is perfectly fine. But desire that is not in submission to God is poison. It is literally sin. It is wanting what I want more than I want what God wants. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the lust of pride. This is the root of sin. Now, if you think about that fundamental root of wayward, rebellious desire, desire pulling me away from God, that certainly can lead to breaking rules. You know, it led Adam to do exactly what God said not to do. It can lead to behavior problems, clearly. But that desire pulling me away from God, brothers and sisters, can we just get real for a minute? That can be absolutely at home in the heart of somebody who is not obviously breaking any rules and who, in fact, is thoroughly catechized in a Christian worldview. I've known Christians like this. You've known Christians like this. Maybe you've been a Christian like this. There are Christians whose lives are actually, morally speaking, pretty tidy. And man, they've been to the worldview camp and they've got all the right ideas. They might even be quite theologically educated. And if you really get to know them, their desires, what's really pulling on their loves in their deepest heart are, are, are absolutely not with God. Absolutely not for God. And it is that wayward desire, wanting what I want more than I want what God wants, that is what gets normalized. That is what gets normalized in sociocultural patterns of life all around us. And think about how that works. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he talks about social contagion. This is actually something that right now, partly because of the social media thing going on in our world, people are studying this. And there's all kinds of scientific studies coming out about social contagion. And social contagion is very simple. We start to want what it is normal to want. Have you ever heard of a trend? That's literally what a trend is. We naturally have this herd thing where when everyone wants something, eventually we start to want it. And that is a kind of social contagion. You and I understand at a biological level that we are embedded in what people call ecosystems, that the, the various life forms and life systems of the world are kind of interrelated with each other where, you know, it's kind of true when the fly sneezes, things happen, you know, uh, on the big, in the big wheels of the world, that things are, you, you and I are embedded in a whole ecosystem of a water cycle and, you know, the fact that we depend on certain kind of microbes to keep us alive and we, there's all this interpenetration of econ, of, of, of uh, biological life, what we call an ecosystem. You know, if you pull one piece out of that, things get very, very disrupted. Well, in the same way, we are, we are totally embedded in what we could call ethosystems. 
I kind of, not just ecosystems biologically, but ethosystems. I'm pulling that term from a, a guy named Jeffrey Schwartz who talks about a shared realm of attitudes, behavior, and ethics. That's an ethosystem. You are in a shared environment, a shared realm, in which people around you have certain kind of typical attitudes for this ethosystem, typical behavior, typical ethics and ethical standards in this ethosystem. And we're all, we're all a part of that. You know, we think our world is normal because it feels like normal to us, but it, someone looking from the outside might have a very different view of our ethosystem, be kind of shocked at it. For example, you know, in, in, in our American life today, we want, we want, think about how your desires are shaped by social contagion. We want now to laugh at everything. Why do we want to laugh at everything? Because everyone is laughing at everything. We live in the most sarcastic, ironic, mocking culture in the history of cultures. Everybody laughs at everything. There are young people in other cultures through history and other places in the world who would look at the fact that young people in the States laugh at everything and take offense at it because some things are not funny. In certain Islamic communities, if you mock Muhammad, you're going to have a problem because it is not funny to them. But in our world, we laugh at everything, including you know, religious prophets and books and you know, even gods. We laugh at them because it's normal. We want to laugh because everyone's laughing. That is an ethos system. We want convenience. Why do we want convenience? Because everybody knows that efficiency is better than effort. Everybody in their right mind in the States understands if you can have efficiency and not have to exert yourself, this is better. And so we want convenience because it's normal. There are societies, there are cultures that would look and say, you know what? Efficiency can ruin people. There's effort that helps you grow without which you'll be stunted. But we want convenience because social contagion. We want to post sexualized pictures of ourselves. Why? Because the pornographication of the body is no longer questioned in our culture. There are Christian young people and old people who are constantly posting things online that other people at other times would have said that is an obviously sexualized pose. It is obviously sexualized attire. And we cannot see it anymore because we're so utterly used to pornographication. Our desires are shaped by the ecosystem. Our children want to date and become sexually, at least romantically, if not sexually involved, way before they have any business whatsoever being married. Why? Because that is just what teens do. Of course they date. They have feelings. They should follow them. That's just the ecosystem. We want to spend money that God has not given to us yet. We want to spend money that God has not given to us yet because it is a given that you live beyond your means. That's why God created the credit card after its kind. It is absolutely normalized, and so we want to spend money that God has not even given to us yet because who wouldn't? This is, this is the world we live in. It's the ethos system. And I'm just talking here about kind of general stuff. None of this even addresses how social contagion can work in the particular tribe that you inhabit. The social pressures of these smaller groups that we live in. So as my friend Jake Meter puts it, desires are socialized. They become social forces. They, these desires, many of which are fine, many of which are actually pulling away from God, they become, I think this is Meter's term, they become sort of encoded in advertising, what is advertising? It's encoded desire. 
market forces. Desire literally drives the capitalist system. It drives the market. You create desire, you feed the desire, you reinforce the desire, you give them more of what they desire, then you create some new desire. The desires, which may very often be pulling us away from being with God and for God, they become encoded in the shows you watch. These desires are encoded in the lyrics of your music. They are encoded in the memes you pass around on TikTok. They are encoded in our politics. These desires are encoded in our assumptions about rights. They're encoded in our celebrity worship and our glossy, you know, this and that and our icons of what the good life is. They're just all around. They're encoded in to our world. And I could probably not care about this so much if I didn't have kids. But I will tell you guys, as you think about how desires are socialized and normalized, I want my kids to be catechized, God willing. I want them to be biblically literate, God willing. I want them to be morally upright, God willing. But I will tell you, the enemy that I watch like a hawk (laughs) are the normal life ways that are pulling on their desires to ignore God or to defy God. That's what I really pay attention to as a dad. It shocks me how many Christian parents are desperately worried that their kids are not going to fit in, that their kids are not going to be normal. I do not understand why there is not more anxiety about the possibility that they will be normal that their desires will be indistinguishable from those of their peers who have no allegiance to God whatsoever, no matter how catechized they are, no matter how much Bible they know, no matter how many rules they follow and how many worldview conferences they go to, if they love the world, the world has its hooks in them. Ken Myers said, if you are serious about following Jesus, it will unfit you for your culture. Because you will not love what the world loves. You will love culture. You'll love music and art and science and political things and economic things. You'll be into life. You'll love creation, but you will love God above all. Or the world has its hooks in you. What are we being habituated through normal practices to value, to prioritize, to treasure, to seek? That's what will have our heart. And as goes the heart, so goes the life. Do you know that I think the big way that in my estimation, the world, this world, the world is that ancient quest for independence. Normalized independence. You know how I think that has its hooks in Christians probably the most today? And I'm almost done. I think probably one of the biggest ways that ancient quest, that desire, that normalized desire to be independent of God gets at us today is the, we talked about this in Bible school a few weeks ago, the ever presence of options. The ever presence in our lives of choices. The assumption that having multiple options about all things at all times is normal. In fact, it's your right. You should have options. You should get to choose. That is very new, historically speaking, And it is very dangerous because unlike any culture in the history of the world before this, we choose what we want from the past. You and I have absolutely no imposed inheritance. You don't have to take anything you don't want to take from your forefathers. Nothing is going to structure your life from history or tradition. 
And we choose all of our experiences in the present, don't we? We choose our communities. We choose our people. We choose our place. We choose our authorities, the people we choose to listen to, which is kind of like not having an authority, by the way, but there we are. But we choose the people that that's an authority for me. We choose our commodities by the thousands. There is no problem in our lives for which we cannot select from a drop-down menu of all kinds of potential solutions. And we choose our future. This would have shocked our ancestors. We choose the lifestyle that we aspire to, and we choose the path to afford that lifestyle. This is all normalized in our time. We choose our neighbors, we choose our friends, we choose our doctors, we choose our restaurants, dine-in or DoorDash. We choose our, the temperature that we want to live in. If you don't want to be hot, you cool down with air conditioning. If you don't want to be cold, you heat it up, the, you turn up the heat in your house. We, we can choose our, the climate we live in. We can virtually choose our weather, we, or whether our weather affects us at least. We can choose the feeds that we follow, the shows that we watch. We choose our college. We choose our church. We choose our religion. We choose our pronouns. We can even choose our body. This is the modern world. We are programmed to choose and to demand what we want from an array of options. That is normal. And then we meet Jesus. Then we meet Jesus. The real Jesus. Not some commodified Jesus custom made for our lifestyle. The real Jesus. And guess what, guess what he says? He says, as Lord, you must choose to love and serve the God who chose you and made you and owns you. You must choose to love the people that he has said are your people, made in his image. You must present your body as a living sacrifice. You must take up your cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. You must seek, first and above all, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And beloved, even as those of us who sit and are serious Christians, I know I see this in my own heart. When you meet that Jesus, our normalized instinct in the modern world that ultimately we choose does get in the way of following Jesus. I think it is safe to say myself included, most of us in this room are going to grow. We are going to be changed into Christ-likeness. We are going to obey and serve Jesus precisely to the extent that it suits us to do so. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? You are going to grow in Christ. You are going to serve and love Jesus to the extent you choose to. To the extent that it fits with what you want. Most of us would not know what to do with an imposed program for spiritual growth. We'd have no idea what to do with it. I'll give you just one sort of worn example, but it still works. It is a certainty that most of us would be more like Jesus if we spent less time on our devices. This is not even a, a, a secret. Most of us understand I would be more like Jesus if I spent less time glued to my device doing whatever doom scrolling I'm doing. And you would be aghast if I stood up here and commanded you to stop. You'd be aghast, and rightly so. But can I be very honest with you as I have to be honest about my own growth? you do not have the discipline to do it yourself. That's why you don't change. 
because you are used to doing what you want because that's the modern way. And we are raising children who are used to doing what they want because that's normal. That is the world. Are you with me? Is that discipleship? Is that discipleship? I'll conclude with this. And this is intended to be sobering. So the fact that we feel sober, it's okay. I would like to talk, and I won't now, about defying the world. Maybe in Bible school we'll talk about defying the world. I'll just wrap up with this. A basic part of Christian community is helping each other build a new normal in which our desires and our loves over time are habituated to really enjoying God and serving God. How could we do it? I personally believe that Lent has a place in the modern, yea, even in the Protestant church, because I think we need some times of communal fasting. I am fasting this 40 days with a friend because I have stuff in my life that I know I'm not going to get on top of if I don't fast with accountability. We need that to say, my desires are submitted to Jesus. Even good desires are submitted to Jesus. We need to have conversations, brothers and sisters, about what I'm talking about today because the Bible says with many counselors make war. I don't know how to defeat the world all alone. Neither do you. We need to talk together about how to do this well because we, that's not who we are anymore. We're God's people. We need not just to have times of fasting. We need to have gatherings for thankful enjoyment and celebration of our God because if the spirit of the old Adam world is normalized independence, The spirit of Jesus' kingdom is just overflowing thankfulness for overflowing gifts and graces. The Father is, every good and perfect gift comes from him. And the more we celebrate that and enjoy that and feast on that and revel in that together, the more we glorify God and are thankful. That is the antithesis of the old Adam way. We must help each other. It is not easy to be really, truly, fully in the world. You know, you can move to a commune and try. You're still full of the world in the commune. Because sin is still there and it will normalize. It is not easy to be fully in this world and yet not of it in our hearts. And when we get weary, and we will sometimes, and we get discouraged, we will sometimes, and all the currents seem to be racing so strongly away from the God that we love, what we need more than anything else is the reassurance of our Lord himself, who said to his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, look, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome this world. Amen. So drive it from our hearts, Father, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.